You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With us today, I'm just delighted, is Dr. Lynn Wagner, a very preeminent pediatrician and developmental behavioral pediatrician. Lynn is a professor of pediatrics at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Department of Pediatrics and director of the Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics and one of our star teachers on the REACH Institute's training programs. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Peter. Well, you are just one of my all-time favorite people. Of course, we've done many training programs together across the country. You have so many areas of expertise. I know that you are one of the key architects of the Academy of Pediatrics, information materials developed around coding. I know you're an expert in neuropsychology of children with developmental disturbances. And I also know you're an expert in the best of what we can do in primary care in delivering child mental health and today's topic of depression. Now, have I got any of that wrong? No, Peter. As a matter of fact, I was a general pediatrician in a very rural, poor part of North Carolina before I went back and did my developmental behavioral fellowship. So I really know what it's like to be on the front line and with a busy schedule and seeing children who are are pretty significantly uh, affected. I think one of the things I've learned so much from you is just how does a busy primary care provider actually do child mental health in primary care settings, particularly when there's so few child mental health specialists around. And people of my kin, uh, child psychiatrists, I know that we have three, six, nine, 12-month waiting lists and uh, sometimes don't take insurance. So it's pretty desperate situation out there. And it really does, I guess, put you guys on the front lines. I think the generalists are on the front lines. And I think that there are, is an increasing awareness that the mental health specialists cannot see all the children. And while some physicians feel uncomfortable because they say, well, this was not part of my training, I do think that there have been a lot of continuing medical education programs, such as through REACH and also the Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, focusing on primary care providers. For today's topic of depression, I'm very curious From your perspective, now I know we have AAP-endorsed guidelines for identifying and managing depression in older children and youth in primary care, but as you point out, most people were not trained. I mean, what's the case you could make or you would like to make to your colleagues about why they should worry about depression, both finding it, assessing it, and managing it? Well, I think one thing that I think everybody sort of implicitly understands but may not have had it sort of explicitly put out to them is when the last time they did a national health survey, there was a huge shift in the conditions that physicians said were chronically impairing children's functioning. Thirty years ago, the top one was pulmonary diseases, and now the top five are speech-language impairment, ADHD, um, learning disabilities, behavioral emotional disruption, and autism. And the fourth one there, the behavioral emotional disruption, that's certainly where depression would fall. These are very 
significant chronic conditions that impair children's functioning. So it's a very important area. In a busy primary care setting, how would one go about kind of finding the depressed kids? That's a very good question. We use the model of developmental screening to look at emotional screening. And just like your car, if you have an automatic seatbelt, a passive seatbelt, so that you don't have to consciously think about buckling up, but it just happens, having a system in your practice where you are screening on an ongoing basis all of your patients, you will find that some of them will float to the surface and really need a closer look. So I would advocate for having a system in the practice whereby everyone is offered a screener. Well, I know like with conditions like autism, people use, oh, the MCHAT and and other scales, tools that can be routinely deployed. What would you use or what would you recommend to find cases of depression? Probably the the first rule, and and this is because I I did practice in an, an area where a lot of patients had government insurance, Medicaid, that we were always trying to keep our costs down but we wanted to deliver high-quality care. So I was always looking for things that had evidence behind them but were in the public domain so that that was one expense that I would try to avoid if I could. The um, Patient Health Questionnaire 9 is certainly an instrument that can be used. It's really been normed in adolescence, certainly started out with adults and then down to adolescence, but there actually are some more people who are using it in older latency children. Older latency children would be children... Seven, eight, nine, ten. Reminds me, I know during REACH Institute trainings, we provide people the PHQ-9M modified for adolescents. So we took out the word work, and we put in school and things like that. And we also asked about suicidality. If people are interested, they can actually download that from the the REACH Institute website at no cost. Are there other tools that you say, this is a good tool, this is free, this is, has evidence behind it? Well, I think one very big one is, of course, the pediatric symptom checklist. This initially started out as a 35-question instrument, but they've called it down to 17 questions. And it's extremely helpful for those in what we call internalizing disorders. It helps us see where might be anxiety or depression, where might be some externalizing disorders such as ADHD. And this is a very well-normed, it's been translated into many languages and actually has had some normative data in other cultures, which is so important. For example, if you're in an area of the country where you have a lot of immigrants from other countries, you want to make sure that the instrument you're using is appropriate for the population that you're trying to screen. And, you know, one of the nice things about the PSC-17 that you're actually pointing out occurs to me is that not only will it pick up potentially depression or anxiety, but also some of the conduct, ADHD, attention problems that also commonly present. That tool is also available on the REACH Institute website for download. So, Lynn, can you talk a bit about if someone finds a kid with depression, what are they to do? When should they just refer? And with such few referral resources around, when should they actually say, oh, well, I'll try to manage it? I think the, for the most important thing to do initially is to quickly assess whether or not you have a good relationship with the child and with the family because you want to know that when you ask the child, have you thought about hurting yourself, that this child feels comfortable with you to give you an honest answer. And if, if you've just seen this child one, one or two times before, this child may not feel comfortable telling you that. And it may be that you might actually have to get someone else involved who has a better relationship with the child. But 
assuming this is a child you've been seeing along, the first thing is to ask them, how sad are you? And to try to see if this is a real emergency. If a child vocalizes and says, yes, I've thought about hurting myself, and here's how I would do it, and here's when I would do it, and, and I don't think anybody really care. They, they're telling you how it would impact other people. You've got an emergency like a stiff neck and a temperature of 104, and that child has to be seen in the context of a mental health setting where they can take action that day. And what kind of case would you say wouldn't be an emergency and say, all right, we're going to work with this child? I think actually that this would be a more common case that you would see. And I think that primary care settings are going to see more and more children. Life now is not easy for children. The schools are ramping up the demands, this, end of, this high stakes end of grade testing. They're cutting down on support in the schools. Very few schools have psychologists who are there for any type of counseling. The guidance counselors are stretched. Teacher aides are being cut so that the teacher is trying to now manage maybe 30, 35 children without another adult present. And so that's stressful. Then you have the child at home with the economy and the way it has been. Both parents working, maybe working two jobs, children coming home to an empty house. So if they come home and they've had a bad day, who are they going to talk to about their feelings? Many parents can't afford high-quality after-school programs, and so they feel like that once a child gets to be 10 or 11 that they can come home safely by themselves. And that may be true for safety issues, but not for the emotional issues of having someone who says, well, come in and sit down and let's have a little snack and tell me about your day. So what does the primary care provider do? So let's say the child sometimes thinks about suicide but really isn't planning anything, but is just kind of, you know, sometimes wishes they were dead and are pretty sad, and it's affecting them at school or home or elsewhere. What would you do? First of all, I would sit down with the child and try to sort of brainstorm together and say, okay, things are not going well. We've got to figure out how to make things better. And go with the child and have the child identify the areas that he or she feels are contributing to their feelings of of hopelessness and worthlessness. And then also say, well, now, what's going right for you? And so try to help them identify things that are actually okay. You know, it could be that they have a pet at home that they like to play with. It could be the lady in the cafeteria at the school who always gives them a little extra on their tray or who says hi to them. Because I think you can't just focus on negatives. You have to also try to find the strengths in the environment and within the child himself. And these conversations cannot occur in five minutes. If you have a child that you know that you're going to have to have an extended discussion with, ideally this appointment might have already been known when they made the appointment, and you could give that slot to like right before lunch or at the end of the day when you would be a little bit freer to take more time. One thing you can do is if you're trying to identify all the areas, sometimes you can use a structured questionnaire to get more information. For example, you could go back over through the PHQ-9 or the PSC-17 and take each of the questions where there was a positive endorsement and say, well, tell me more about this. And I think this is one way that primary care providers can feel more confident because the questions are already there. And what you're doing is you're just explicating. You're just asking the child to elaborate on what they want to say about it. Well, let's say you take a little extra time or maybe you schedule them to come back, you know, the following week because you realize something's cooking and they agree to do that. But after a, a month or so, things aren't all that better. But you're not necessarily sure that you need to 
get him into big-time mental health yet, what would you do? Well, the first thing, I mean, if you look at the interventions, and one thing I do want to point out is that you always want to make sure that you've examined the child in the past couple of months so that, you know, perhaps there's something going on. For example, if you have a teenager come in and their acne has not been taken care of, i got to tell you, that's a major problem for teenagers. So that's one thing you can work on. If you take the, as part of it the sleep history, if they're not sleeping well, you can help with sleep. Just some simple things like that can really improve the quality of life for the patient. But if you see someone who's depressed, you always have to have in the back of your mind. You know, we could do a little watchful waiting as long as there's no emergency and as long as we're doing some things to make it better, helping the sleep, helping the acne, finding some time each day for pleasurable activities, and then having them come back for regular appointments. I mean, once a week would not be too often. And then if you can't see, things are getting better. And you can actually use these rating scales. You can use them to sort of follow how the child is doing. But if things aren't getting better, then you do have to think about therapy. And, you know, there are different types of therapy. There's interpersonal therapy. There's play therapy. There is a type of therapy called manual-based cognitive behavioral therapy that truly has a lot of evidence behind it. The problem with it is that there are not that many people who are trained to do manual-based, and it's just like a cookbook. You do this, and you do this, and this, and this. And the reason why it's hard to find a therapist is because it's not fun for the therapist. We're talking today with Professor Lynn Wagner, professor at UNC Chapel Hill and head of the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. So, Lynn, when you decide to use a medicine, what makes you say, yep, I'm going to have to use this medication? Well, it has to do with the severity. For example, if the child comes in, they're not suicidal, but they're clearly their sleep's dysregulated, they're ahodonic, they're no pleasure in anything, not calling their friends, friends contacting them, but they're not picking up on it, irritability at home, irritability at school, then I really know I have to do something more quickly. If I can't get manual-based cognitive behavioral therapy, then I will start medication while I'm still trying to access another type of therapy. Sometimes the barriers are lack of availability due to economic reasons or just geographic reasons. If you're out in the country, you may not have people close by. So I'll start medication, and I always look to the evidence-based medications for children and adolescents. Where do we have evidence for using medications, and which medicines are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And the one that I would advise a primary care physician is to look at the list that are FDA-approved and pick one and get to know it really, really well. Get to know the formulations, feel comfortable with it, with the side effect profile. On the Internet, there are usually side effect scales so that you can get a baseline of what the child, in terms of side effects, you know, do they normally have headaches, do they normally have some stomach aches, and then so you can track side effects. Prozac, I think, of fluoxetine comes in a liquid formulation and a pill, and it is FDA-approved for teenagers and for children. I do know that there are two, at least currently, fluoxetine or Prozac and Lexapro, which is still on patent, so it can be quite expensive. You know, all things being equal, what's your first choice medicine? I will tell you I use fluoxetine, and it's because I see so many children who have Medicaid or don't have insurance, and so the cost is really an issue. I've become very comfortable with it. I have the um, SSRI side effect scales. I get baseline on my rating scales, and I follow it. I tell parents and the child, too, that why we're doing it. I give them an idea of how long they should be taking it before they start to feel better. I also especially tell them that any time you start a therapy, and it's whether it's a 
talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, any type of intervention, medication, the first 12 days, about the first week and a half to two weeks, are an initial period of what we call destabilization. And that's probably the riskiest time in terms of someone doing something impulsively. And some people will say, well, it's because the child or adolescent was so down, felt so bad, they had no energy. And once they get a little bit of energy, then they really can follow through on their thoughts for hurting themselves. You know, you mentioned the importance of tracking side effects. Public domain side effects checklists are also available on the REACH Institute website for those interested in downloading those kinds of tools. When you treat depression, say, in a young teen, what would be a typical starting dose for you? Well, I have to tell you that I've, you know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I go slow and start low. A lot of my patients have what we call sensory integration issues, so they tend to have a pretty significant side effect profile. So I want to see if I can catch that lower. For, like, say, a 15- or 16-year-old, I probably would start with 10 milligrams. It's interesting. I know in one of the large national studies funded by NIH that 430-some kids were studied with medicine versus therapy versus the combination. And there they used this very best therapy. And then some were also assigned to placebo. And it showed that the therapy and the placebo were about the same. I mean, placebo is pretty powerful. But the medicine really added an extra oomph. But making your point, it was the combination that was the very best medicine plus therapy. We've been talking today with Professor Lynn Wagner, a professor at UNC Chapel Hill in the Department of Pediatrics and head of the Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. Lynn, thank you very much. Oh, Peter, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.